Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We begin our Lenten Sermon Series, Modern Day Idols, introducing what those modern day idols may be. We take a brief look at Paul's original statement to the Athenians. You're listening to Modern Day Idols. I see that you are very religious by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 16 through 34, and as you've heard by now in this service, we start during Lent a new sermon series. This time we will be thinking about idolatry. Lent, of course, is a season where we think about our sins, where we think about what's broken in our life, and we lift them up to God so that He can uproot them and start building us towards sanctification. So to this week, this this month, these next five, six weeks, we'll be thinking about idolatry and how it still shows itself in our life. And what better way to start thinking about idolatry than to go to Athens with Paul? Listen. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler, and that's like, what is this hayseed, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said of him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening about the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, We should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image built by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, 
but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul had been in Berea. He'd had some months of ministry there. He'd been preaching. And he'd just come from Berea to Athens. And he'd come ahead of his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, who had promised to come right after him. So, Paul had a couple of days to kill. He had some time to spend in Athens. And he did what any sensible person would do if you had a couple of days to spend in Athens. He decided to take in the sights. Because even in those days, Athens was an extraordinary city. Athens was already a historical wonder, even at the, the turn of, of from B.C. into A.D. It was hundreds of years old. So Paul goes strolling through the city of Athens and sees the sights. He goes up to the Acropolis, and he sees the Parthenon, and he walks through all the ancient streets of the city. And he notices that everywhere he goes, he sees statues of idols all the gods and the goddesses of the Greek pantheon are represented. Goes around one corner and there's Poseidon with his trident riding a, sea, uh, riding a seahorse, god of the sea. Goes around another corner and there's Ares, the god of war, looking muscular, carrying a sword and looking fierce. Walks down the street and there is a, you know, a beautiful and very alluring statue of Aphrodite, goddess of love and beauty and pleasure. And a little further along, there is Athena, goddess of wisdom and knowledge, looking beautiful as well, but also stern and proud and noble. Idols everywhere in the city. And it's, of course, making Paul shake his head. Paul is a Jew by descent. And as a Jew, he would have been raised to be absolutely allergic to idols and now as a Christian Jew, knowing that Jesus is the one and only Lord of this universe, all of these idols make him sad and angry that people are messing up their life this way. So he's walking around getting more and more agitated when he turns a corner and he comes to a, a, a place where it looks like there should be a statue. There's a pedestal. And there's a flat area on top and it looks like it's waiting for a statue to be put there. And, and on the side is an inscription. Agnosto Theo, to an unknown God. And when Paul sees that description, he can't help himself. He laughs out loud. All these gods, and these people still haven't figured out what's going on in this world. Here in Athens, a city with all these gods, a city with all these philosophies, where every god that's ever been worshipped and every philosophy that's ever been thought of is bandied about the city every single day, and still these people still haven't found what they're looking for. That statue, or that pedestal, 
to an unknown God is the testimony that despite all their philosophies and all their gods, the Athenians still hadn't filled that place that's empty in their soul. Paul cuts short his tour and heads towards the marketplace because the Spirit is stirring inside of him and he can feel a sermon coming on. That's how it works, by the way. So today we start our series on idolatry. And what a better way to start than to walk through the streets of Athens with Paul and see all the gods there. And I hope that as we listen to Paul's reaction, his sermon, in response to what he sees, that it'll begin to help us to reflect on idols and how idols still have a place in our life. And as I was thinking about idols this week, I think that many of us um, still, when we think about idolatry, inevitably think about statues. When we think about idol worship, we think of people bowing down to statues. The Greeks were idolaters because they bowed down to statues of Zeus and Apollo. Uh, The people who who bowed down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar put up, they were idolaters because they bowed down to the golden image. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel bowed down to the statue of Baal, therefore they were idolaters, right? So, and that's all true, That's all idolatry that I just mentioned there. But when we think of it in those terms, it becomes all about the statues. And it's more than that. As a kid, I remember thinking, in fact, that when I heard these stories, when I sat and listened to children's sermons and heard stories like the story of Nebuchadnezzar, I remember thinking when I heard about idolatry, there must not be much idolatry anymore in the world. Because I, I don't, as I walk around, I don't ever see anyone bowing down to idols. So that must be something for the old days. But of course, I was completely wrong about that. Idols are very much with us. In fact, every single god and goddess in the Greek pantheon is still worshipped today in the streets of our city. Every single god and goddess in the Greek pantheon is very much still worshipped today. If you don't think anyone worships Aphrodite, I urge you to go down to your nearest Victoria's Secret and just sort of stand in the middle of that store and drink in the ethos. And then if you happen to be at Woodland Mall, walk down the hall and go into Macy's and stand in the middle of the cosmetic section, which is enormous. And as you do, consider the priestesses of Aphrodite in their black robes who are willing to help you with product. If you don't think anyone worships Dionysus anymore, Dionysus, the god of wine and theater and spectacle, if you don't think anyone worships Dionysus anymore, I urge you to, to, well, I don't urge you, but (laughs) consider a frat party or a rave. Or if you want to stay safer than that, just turn on MTV and watch any Pitbull video. I'm talking about the Latin rapper, not the dog. And if you don't think anyone worships Athena anymore, well, let me hold off on that one. I'll get to it later. The point is, idols don't need statues. Idols take on new forms for new generations. All those idols get reincarnated and take new forms in our society. That's because idols are powers. Idols are made from good, God-created powers that get twisted into evil forms that get lifted up too high. 
And so, and, and this is important for the whole series, as we criticize idols, as I speak against idols during this series, I'm not, um, often the thing I'm speaking against is something good at its heart. So when I speak against Aphrodite, as I just did, I'm not speaking against beauty or romance. Or if I speak out against Ares, I'm not necessarily speaking out against military or, or a nation having an army. But what I'm speaking against is these good things, these necessary things that are raised too high, that are put in the place of God, or as the catechism said, put alongside God. And that's something that we do generation after generation. As John Calvin said, our hearts are factories of idols. And I promise you that if Paul walked the streets of Grand Rapids or sat down and watched a day's worth of cable television, he would have exactly the same reaction that he had in Athens. So we're going to spend five weeks, five more weeks after this one, looking at idols, and today Paul's going to help us. But before we get to what Paul actually said to the people of Athens, let me say two things in general about idols, two things. And there's more to say, but I want to start with these two this morning. First, People are attracted to idols because idols promise to give you power. When you worship them, they promise to lift you up above the ordinary fray and make you extraordinary and give you control over your world. Beauty, Aphrodite, says to you, worship me and I will open doors for you. I will give you attention and pleasure. Money says, no, 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 worship me. Because everyone and everything has their price, and if you worship me, I can open any door for you. And success says, no, 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 worship me, because I can give you power. I can give you an immortal name. Your name will live on and on and on. Idols promise you power and control over your life. That's the attraction of them. But, and here's the second thing, even though they promise you power, Idols are severe taskmasters. They are demanding gods. There is no grace in the world of idolatry. So idols promise you this power, but they don't give you that power up front. They say to you, you must sacrifice many things in order to have my fruit. So beauty says, I will give you my blessings, but first, you must spend an hour a day at my workout temple. And you must prostrate yourself before me, not simply kneeling, but contorting yourself in all signs of exercise positions. And then you must go home and anoint yourself with oils, and then I will give you my fruit. And success says, I will make your name immortal, but first you must worship me 80 hours a week at your job. And then when that's done, I will need a sacrifice. I want you to put on the altar your family. So idols promise you power and control. Idols make wonderful, put wonderful offerings in front of you, but they are not gods of grace. They are severe. They are taskmasters. They want everything from you. And eventually you find yourself in an addictive cycle where you're chasing this good, which just gets further and further away from you. And you find yourself possessed by the idol you worship. Okay, let's go back to Paul. When last we left our hero, he was on his way to Athens University to speak to the tenured faculty there. 
That's what the Areopagus was, right? The most learned people in the entire Roman world gathered there. All the smartest philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and everyone else gathered there to share ideas. It was the Stanford, it was the Yale, it was the Harvard of the day. So Paul goes to the Areopagus to speak, and in the way that Luke tells the story, Paul doesn't just confront idolatry in general. It's clear that he's confronting one idol at the Areopagus in specific. When I started this sermon, I meant for this sermon to just be a sort of a general sermon on, on idolatry in general. But as I studied Acts 17, I realized, no, Paul is aiming at one specific idol. And the idol that Paul's aiming at is the idol of knowledge, the idol of the intellect, which can also, another good thing, right? Study, learning, a good thing, but can be twisted into a power and raised up too high. Remember I said I get back to Athena? What's Athena the goddess of? Wisdom and knowledge. Do you know the, the, the origin story of Athena? She was birthed from the head of Zeus, out of his brain. I can see some of you nodding your head. Out of his brain, right? That's, that's symbolic, that's diagnostic. The Athenian philosopher Plato said that Athena was the goddess of wisdom and intellect and knowledge and suggested, speculated that her name came from two words, Theo and Noesis. Theonoesis, which means divine intelligence. All right? So intelligence is absolutely at the center of who Athena is. Now, do you think Athena would have had any influence over the culture of Athens? Well, the city was named after her for one thing. <laughs> and if any of you been to Athens and been up to the Acropolis, to the Parthenon, it's a temple, right? Whose temple is it? It's Athena's temple. Wisdom, knowledge, intellect are literally physically raised to the top of that city. Which is why Luke, when he reports on Athens, says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking and learning about the latest ideas. So knowledge and learning have been raised to the highest height. They are literally people who live in an ivory tower. Because knowledge is an amazing power. There's something intoxicating about it. If you walk into a room of people who are struggling with something, who have some problem they can't solve, and you walk in, and you use your knowledge and you explain what's going on to them and you give them the solution and they all look up at you and they nod in appreciation and a little bit of awe. Wow, that feels good. You can get addicted to that. The Athenians have taken that good thing and raised it up high and now they sit, as philosophers will, up in their ivory tower at that, that, that intellectual abstract distance surveying all of the world, believing that intellect should rule the world. And if you want an example of that, those of you who know any of your philosophy, who did Plato think should rule the world? The philosopher kings. Intellect was the key to everything in Athens. So Paul comes, he stands up at the Areopagus and he engages, he engages this idol and he engages it in a really clever way. In the first part of his speech, he really speaks the language of philosophers. He, he meets the philosophers and the intelligent people on their own terms. He speaks abstract languages. He, he quotes the poets. He refers to their architecture. 
Uh, when he talks about God, he says things like, in him we live and move and have our being, which I think you can hear is sort of abstract and analytical. So from verses uh, 22 to 28, everything is, is in the philosopher's court. And you can imagine everyone listening going, hmm, interesting ideas, and sort of talking about Paul's metaphysic and asking if they agree. But then in verse 29, something changes. Paul knocks down the ivory tower. He knocks down that analytical distance that we intellectuals like to have. And he gets specific and personal. And he says, you know, if you really want to understand the world, if you want to know about wisdom, you want to know about justice, you want to know where knowledge begins, you got to get to know Jesus. This man whom God sent to the world and showed that he was Lord by raising him from the dead. It's really all about Jesus. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, all things hold together. So, so if you guys in the Areopagus, you really want to know knowledge, you really want to be intelligent, you know what you got to do? You got to put aside your books and you got to fall on your knees before Jesus like a child. And that's the point that he loses 90% of his audience. Because Paul is asking them to surrender their idol. They spent their whole life working on their intelligence. It's who they are. It's where they get their pride. It's where they get their dignity. And they listen to Paul say, it's all about this carpenter from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? I've, I'm a learned man. I've studied all the philosophies of the world. And you want me to fall on my knees like some hayseed at a revival meeting? I'm not going to do it. Resurrection, are you serious? Have you read Plato? It's intellectually untenable. And so almost all of them turn away. This is such a typical pattern. When you spent your whole life working on something, when you spent your whole life and your time building something up and that something has become the source of your dignity, the source of your pride, the thing that makes you you, the thing that you could not do without, and someone asks you to give it up, become like a child, most people can't do it. How hard it is for the rich or the smart or the beautiful or the popular to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for those people to enter the kingdom of heaven. When you've got everything, when you're high and lifted up, it's so hard to surrender it and fall on your knees. What's your thing? What's your idol? What's the thing that fills up your daydreams? What's the thing that you've given your whole self to? What's the thing that people think of when they look at you? I hope that during this sermon series, Jesus starts pulling at that thing and that you are able to leave it at his throne. And today, may we all come to this table empty-handed, needing nothing, offering nothing but our need for salvation and allowing Jesus to fill us. Amen. Lord God, you know that we're proud people. And in our pride, um, we build a whole bunch of different idols. Thank you, Lord, that your word keeps 
um, knocking us down in the best way. Thank you, Lord, for this feast of grace and sacrifice that we do nothing to deserve, but that reminds us that our life is pure grace and that always challenges our pride. As we come to this table, Lord, make us ready to participate in this feast joyfully as children. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.